Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to the Apple Store Upper West Side. Are you guys excited to be here? Great. That's what we're looking for. We're really, really excited about this evening. Please, can I get a warm round of applause for Brian and Michael Voltaggio and moderator James Osland. Hello, good evening. Hi, can you, you guys can hear me too. Uh, welcome and thank you for coming. Uh, God, I love these stores. You always feel like you're in the church of the computer in these places. <laughs> um, I'm going to give a brief introduction to Brian and Michael, and uh, then I'm going to ask some questions. We're going to look at their fabulous new book, and um, then we're going to take a few questions from you guys. Brian and Michael Voltaggio have been called two of the most talented chefs of their generation, though they're probably best known for their their head-to-head brother-to-brother competition on season six of Bravo TV's Top Chef. In their debut cookbook, Volt Inc., the brothers present their cuisine through an exploration of 20 food families and ingredients. And I think they'll explain to us uh, what I mean by food families in a few minutes. Tonight, they'll give us a sneak peek into their new book, touching on what inspires them, the creative process, and their role in the current culinary landscape as both artists and craftsmen. And there's another thing I want to add to this. I've actually just met Brian and Michael just yesterday. I, like many of you here, enjoyed watching them on on Top Chef. But one thing that I would also add is they're incredibly sweet, wonderful guys, too. Um, So I thought that we would begin tonight by asking the brothers to read a short explanation excerpt from their introductions, their independent introductions from the book. Thank you. Thank you for the last comment, too. That was really nice of you. (laughs) He wasn't talking about you. I I know he wasn't talking about me. I'll take that, Michael. Um, So, as you can see, we are brothers by the uh, exchange there. So, a little note uh, from me, as it says. So, uh, a chef's career uh, begins in childhood. Your your family influences your palate in countless ways which becomes a starting point for life in the kitchen. I remember my brother Michael sitting at a table for hours fighting with the Brussels sprouts on his plate. Mom would keep the battle going and eventually would give in. And Mike really put up a fight, trust me. Uh, I've seen in some of the same uh, behavior in my son Thatcher, uh, who is in the crowd, who has not developed a strong liking for most foods thus far. Uh, But because I see the excitement in his eyes when he walks into my kitchen... I know that eventually the love of food will happen. Memories of my childhood are punctuated by holiday meals. The aroma of cinnamon coffee cake baking in the oven, the smell of charcoal embers in the barbecue, the sight of mom's sauce for spaghetti simmering in a crock pot, and neighborhood gatherings at her house in which bushels of crabs and a huge pot of creamed corn uh, were on the menu. I also remember our backyard fruit and vegetable garden where my two siblings and I had decided it was okay to snack straight from the source. Although we got in trouble from time to time for eating ingredients before our mother could get to them, our uh, petty thievery proved to be, uh, you know, it, a thing of, of, of years to come in the kitchen. I mean, we, we were already seeking out the best ingredients before we could actually cook with them. Uh, all of those experiences helped to make the food nerd that I am today. 
I love to discover new and intriguing ways to create and teach about and share food. For this book, I was fascinated by the idea of studying various food families and to see how the members of each might interact with one another. Michael and I chose families which focus on based on our respective repertoires and our passions for specific ingredients. And then we each contributed two recipes from each family. For example, the nightshade family includes peppers, potatoes, eggplants, and tomatoes. Ingredients that are classically paired together in different cuisines and in many variations, or coriander, cumin, and fennel, all part of the parsley family, prove equally complementary in countless dishes. So this is a note from Michael. I guess that's me. Chefs are in the business of emotion. We create emotions in others through the dining experience and we use food as a means to express our own emotions. Our work is our passion, our passion is food, and our craft is to cook. But cook what? Cook how? These are the questions that I often ask myself. Perhaps I'll never be able to answer them. But for more than 15 years, I've had fun trying to just do that. The reason these questions are so difficult to answer is because Brian's iPad is now covering up my thing. Okay. The reason these questions are so difficult to answer is because working with food offers endless possibilities. Add a little of this, a little of that, and in seconds you have given birth to a new flavor, texture, aroma, and if you're lucky, a visual masterpiece. Of course your hard work is destined to be admired only for a few seconds before it is deconstructed, brief, briefly investigated, and then consumed promptly by the diner, hopefully leaving a fond memory or evoking a past one in its wake. But eating is much more than a transitory consumption of calories. My mother made the entire family sit down together at the dinner table every night to share a meal. Unfortunately, many, many people take this ritual for granted, not realizing that food has the power to bring us together. That is more than just the fuel that, is more than just the fuel that keeps the body going for life's adventures. Indeed, family is the underlying theme in this book. According to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, family is both a group of persons of common ancestry and a closely related series of elements. This book fits both, both definitions. My brother Brian and I wrote it together, and we organized the recipes into 20 families of ingredients. Do you like Brussels sprouts now? If they have enough bacon in them. <laughs> I love Brussels sprouts, actually. What, what turned you around? You know, it's funny. I think as, a, as I grew older and I was able to get into the kitchen and start exploring with food, one of the challenges I would take on as a, as a chef is to take ingredients that I didn't like so much growing up as a child and make them in a way that I actually like them. Mm -hmm. And then I found that, for instance, cauliflower was a big struggle of mine growing up. Well, when I realized that it didn't have to be like a boiled, mushy, flavorless thing and found that you could make a silky, smooth, delicious puree out of it, Cauliflower slowly became one of my favorite things to eat. Were you a picky kid, too? Um, I mean, I don't mean to no, assume that you were a picky kid, but I'm kind of getting that vibe. Yeah, he was. <laughs> it, it, that's okay. I mean, but, but, you know, obviously his palate evolved. I mean, as in mine did, too. I mean, I think I started out probably le a lot less picky than Michael. Um, I definitely got up from the d dinner table a lot quicker than he did. Many, many occasions. I, I think Michael had an aversion for green vegetables at one point. But it changed. I want to share with you guys uh, an, another passage from the book, uh, which is from the uh, foreword by the wonderful chef Charlie Palmer. Um, and I'm exerting it. This isn't, this isn't the entire thing. I'm, I'm just giving you bits and pieces of it. Considering America's current love affair with food, there's never been a better time to be a chef in this country. 
And there are no better examples of kitchen craftsmen in our exciting culinary era than the Voltaggio brothers. No matter what you might have seen on their successful season of Top Chef, battling competition is not the electric charge between the brothers. They're more like a skilled pair of raconteurs out to tell the same story, but each in a very personal, very prideful way. Their diversity of style doesn't make them competitors, it makes them colleagues. And at their core, the Voltaggio brothers are remarkably allied. They're earthy in their approach to sourcing ingredients, cerebral in the use of those ingredients, and theatrical in the presentation of their final dishes. It's a devastatingly effective fusion of talents that they have successfully translated for the home cook in this, their first book. And by the way, you'll be seeing at points various blips of this very gorgeous looking book. So I'm gonna start by asking a few questions and a few more questions, in fact. What do, um, considering Charlie Palmer's introduction, what do you guys feel about the current state of food in this country and how you fit into it? I mean, I, I feel first and foremost that I think food and fashion and entertainment and all of that is sort of coming together and things like cooking shows and, and so forth are making the at-home chef a lot more savvy to what's going on and what we're actually doing in our kitchen. So there's a need and a demand for people at home to have things become more accessible to them so that they can cook more at home like we're cooking in our restaurants. But also I think it's, it's going the other way because restaurants have gotten so far advanced with technology and things like that, there's also a need from our diners to come in and experience the comfort of the things that they have at home. So it's cool to watch it go back and forth right now. What, what, would you say either direction of, uh, is there a particular kind of cooking that you're drawn to doing right now? Would, would you say it's m more, more sciencey, more involving things like I, emergent you know, circulators I, or, or more what we collectively think of as just good home cooking? Yeah, no, I mean, I think what right now that, that chefs, you know, we're, cooking like Michael and I are right mm -hmm. now, I, I think what we're finding is, is more of a level of balance. I mean, there's this huge influence of technology into the kitchen mm -hmm. over the last 10 years. I mean, even before then, but in the last 10 years, you know, really hitting mainstream. And um, I mean, with, with the inclusion, obviously, of technology, even looking at this, I mean, now we're able to bring cookbooks onto an iPad and, and actually right. be able to navigate through. I mean, incredible things are happening with food and media. And, um, you know, it, with new tools like emergent circulators that were only used not only for you know, scientific experiments and then made their ways into the kitchen and now they're making way into the home kitchen, it's pretty extraordinary. It, the good thing is, is adding some level of um, efficiency, I, I think, you know, in the professional kitchen and translating into home. But with all of that now, now we're able to use all of that new technology and actually make things, as Michael was saying, a little bit more comforting, looking for things that are, that are close to you as far as ingredients are concerned, being more responsible about what we buy. Um, I think it's definitely on the mind. So now we're creating a good level of balance. How would you define modernist cuisine, which I'm getting a sense of is, is maybe what you're talking about as far as these advancements in, 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 in the professional kitchen are? I mean, there's, the, it go, there's restaurants that focus solely on utilizing modern techniques in their food, but then there's also 
just the simple idea of taking advantage of the technology that's available to us and applying that to our cooking to enhance it, or in, in, in most cases, I hope, improve it. And I think that's where, where Brian and I fit in, is that, you know, if there's 30 new techniques that just came out and it became a trend, we should at least be knowledgeable of them to be able to make an educated decision as to whether or not we want to use them in our own kitchens, in our own cooking. And I think that goes for a lot of people. Um, you know, there's people out there that say, like, I'll never get an iPhone, but then again, look at where we're sitting right now, and, and they're, you know, they're missing out, as far as I'm concerned. And I think there's a lot of chefs out there that, I'll never cook anything sous vide, but why not at least try it and see, you know, because I know that every single person that vowed to never pick up an iPhone has changed their mind as soon as they actually had a chance to hold it in their, their hand and play with it. It certainly happened to me, so... Would you guys consider yourself modernist cuisine cooks? Would that be fair to say? I mean, I'd say we're probably students of cuisine globally. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that, you know, with the infusion of these new techniques into the kitchen, we definitely embraced them. We definitely, you'll see some of that technology used in this book. Um, you'll see it used in our kitchens. But I think you'll see it used in balance with, with traditional technique, though, too. And there's a coffee cake in the, in the book. Yeah, there's a coffee <laughs> cake in the book. Yeah, exactly. And um, so... Do you, I have think, to, I think do you have to use liquid nitrogen to make the coffee cake? Um, <laughs> if you want to freeze your ice cream quickly, you can. No, but, I mean, of course you can. Um, but no, it, it's not a necessity to make the, the coffee cake. And, 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 I, and I like that there is balance now in kitchens, that we are still hanging on tradition and cooking, that we're still learning how to properly roast meats and sear fish. And, mm -hmm. and, I, and I make that a staple of, in my kitchen, and my cooks still understand those techniques. But yet we still apply modern techniques. We still look for for the next, the next gadget, the next thing. Because we, we want to be students of our cuisine, we want to be responsible that we learn more, and that we, that we, uh, that, that we also expand our, our repertoires. It's almost like I'm getting the sense that you embellish classic cooking with these, with these effects that maybe, maybe for us as diners expand our experience of, of classic cooking. It shows us different aspects Look, of classic cooking. You're expecting that we know more than you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the diner is expecting a, you know, a theatrical presentation sometimes of, of cuisine. And they want to see you know, us use uh, technology and, 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 and you know, interesting flavor combinations and reaching for ingredients in other areas of the world. Um, that might not be, you know, local to us, but then, then again, but also being responsible with how we're getting our ingredients. So it's a, it, they're big shoes to fill as a chef. Science food, modernist cuisine, whatever you want to call it, molecular, molecular gastronomy, it does have a lot of critics. A lot of people are, are really kind of, you know, just, you know, very, very against it. Would, how, how would you respond to that? Well, I, I think that we've gotten to a point now where, where the, the criticism has is, is been, been, been laid out. You know, it's been, it's been put out there. And there's still um, a lot of people who, who, you know, with respect to traditional cooking techniques, for example, and, and, and traditional, um, uh, I guess, repertoires. I mean, which Michael and I, we, we were trained classically as chefs. I mean, right. we, we believe in that. And so um, I, I, I think now we're to the point where as long as we're responsible in showing that there is balance in it, that you're not taking a technique and that's your full focus on a dish, that you are, it, food has to taste good. I mean, that's the bottom line. But food right. has become much more than just, like I said, a consumption of calories too, though. It's very subjective. And that's like saying, you know, there are people out there that just don't like modern art. There's people out there that don't yeah. like, you know, the way we're making our movies today. Why can't they just make it like they used to and stuff like that? And I think... Food has become 
such a big part of our of our culture today and and definitely our generation and i think you know people find where they fit into that and what they like and don't like and not everybody's going to be a fan of my cooking and not everybody's going to be a fan of brian's cooking and not everybody's going to be a fan of my mother's cooking but at the end of the day you know the goal is still the same and that's to just make something delicious and put it on a plate and hope that everybody enjoys it when they eat it and that's that's what we try to do it's not I hope I can make it smoke before they eat it, or I hope I can make it jump <laughs> off the plate, or I, I hope that I can make something that's supposed to be red look green. You know, it's, it's at the end, the goal, and, and the one thing that we remind ourselves when we're putting it on a plate is somebody's going to eat it. And that's, that's a pretty powerful good. thought to have mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're plating a dish. Mm-hmm. Somebody's, somebody's going to eat it. So your book is written both for the professional cook and for the home cook. Can you tell us about how a home cook will go about using your book? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the great thing about the book is, is in, especially as being a professional chef, a lot of our recipes take you know, many different steps to prepare and a lot of building block ingredients that, that go into a finished, completed composition of a dish. And, mm-hmm. and so... We, we have little sub-recipes that are within each one that you can actually take those and pair with another item. I mean, Michael explained it really well when we were talking this week about, um, you know, a, a couple of different vinaigrettes that you might be able to find sporadically throughout the book. Well, use this simply just dress some greens. I mean, find some things in there that you can relate to. Uh, definitely find flavor profiles that you enjoy and, and pull some of these pieces out of it. I mean, there's a great right. um, you know, spinach casserole, that, that, you know, cream spinach that, that's a part of a chicken dish that's in this book. Well, it's chicken dish takes two days to prepare. It's cooked sous vide and it's marinated, I mean, it's brined. And, and so that's a long preparation. But if you want to have a really great side dish to a meatloaf even, I mean, there's, there's things in there that you can pull out. More or less the sub-recipes. I, I think in cookbooks the sub-recipes are, in fact, more important than the completed dish recipes because the sub-recipes are really where you're going to find ideas to improve your own cooking or to change your own cooking or if you just want to try something new but you don't want to take on the task of cooking a short rib for 48 hours but you want to make that little bit like bit of fried broccoli that tastes like popcorn Mm -hmm. you know that's one recipe that takes a couple hours where the whole dish would take you know a couple days I guess so it's it's reading the book and really reading it and finding content in there that excites you and inspires you and, and only focusing on those few things. And then if you want to cook through the entire dish, have at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd like to address your creative process as it pertained to the book and also just in general. How do you come up with your menus? What, what excites you? What informs the development of a particular menu? I definitely think geography has a lot to do with it. I mean, I'm, I'm exposed to a lot more in, in L.A. than Brian is on the East Coast with regards to, to produce, for instance. But, you know, where, where I, I just go to a farmer's market, you know, we can get to a farmer's market every day of the week if we want because it's, it's that accessible for us. Brian still cooks with the same sense of responsibility, and he goes out and just has to simply look a little bit harder for those, for those markets. But um, I definitely say that, that season dictates a lot you know, when it comes to cooking. And I think any chef would say that. If you follow the seasons, you're pretty much saying that you're getting the ingredients at their peak and you're using them when you should be using them. There's other chefs, and I've worked with other chefs that would say, you know, a tomato is available 12 months out of the year from somewhere. I, I would love to put 
a tomato from every month of the year on a table at the same time and, and say, taste the one from January and taste the one from September and you tell me which one you'd rather eat. When you were putting the book together, did, did, this, did the structure that evolved echo what you just described at all? Um, yeah, no, I think it did. But I mean, when we were sitting there trying to figure out how we're going to categorize our repertoire, I mean, that was the big thing. So Michael has uh, dishes he's been working with for years that are you know, tried true and great dishes that he wanted to showcase in the book. And, and I did, too, as well. It's like, okay, how do you put all of this together to make it make sense? Mm-hmm. And, and we want to be very authentic. We didn't want to create recipes just to put a book on the, on the shelf. It wasn't right. what we were about. And so what we did is we spent time trying to figure that out, and we argued back we and argued, forth. We argued, basically, right. is what yeah, it really took, means it was, to say. It, it took a long time to figure this out. And then finally, we went from, got to the point where we said, okay, well, let's take one ingredient, and then we'll each build you know, two dishes out of it. And then we started looking at a repertoire, and we was like, that doesn't work, because you know, if Michael doesn't have two dishes out of the category, say it's asparagus, but I have two, then he has to create two dishes for just, just to fill the, the void. And so we started looking bigger than that, and we said, okay, well, where does asparagus come from? Like, globally, what, is there a parent family? And obviously we look to uh, food families as being the structure for the book. Mm-hmm. And so within each family, we were able to be a little bit more uh, true to our repertoire and, and pool ingredients because we knew that there was a much broader scope of ingredients that fell, you know, fell within each family, and we were able to create two dishes each that would fall there. Um, so your book is designed with this organizing principle of family. Can you tell us about how that came about? Brian and I argued a lot about how to put the book together. And there was dishes that he wanted to make and dishes that I wanted to make. And how do we have some sort of common ground to connect everything through the book? And we had um, you know, long conversations with our publisher, Weldon Owens, who supported really whatever we wanted to do, but at the same time wanted to help us. We've never written a book before, so we definitely needed some advice in that. We don't, I'm not an author, well, we are now, but I was just a cook. And then we met um, with Alex and Aki, who have ideas in food, and their, their whole deal is that they're chefs for ideas chefs. Ideas in food, that, what, that blog? I, the blog. Yeah, and have you guys ever heard of that? It's so interesting. They're I, great, a, and so they helped us organize our thoughts and, and put it together in a way that, that made it make more sense. But also, it forced us to do some research in the process of writing the book, and we learned a lot through the process because, you know, I, I never knew what Goosefoot, you know, what that really meant until we did the research and got into it, and we realized, like, there was a lot to learn in the process of writing the book ourselves, too. Yeah, you learn a lot about flavor combinations, you know, when you, you organize something like that. I mean, for example, the Laurel uh, family, which encompasses bay leaf and, and cinnamon, surprisingly, they go really well together. Right. You, you, see them, you see them as ingredients in, in cranberries, for example, thinking about the holiday seasons coming up, and you know, the, the classic uh, cam- cranberry chutney typically has like citrus and cinnamon and bay leaf, but why? And, and mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's a reason why that happens and why it works. Um, cinnamon coffee cake and bay leaf ice cream goes really well together, too. So once you decided on these ingredient families that, that sort of you know, for, form the basis of the book, how did you decide which ingredients to use as a recipe inspiration? I mean, I think that's where we dug into our, our own sort of souls and, and tried to figure out you know, what, what are our favorite things that we're cooking right now? What are some dishes that we've made that we want to share with everyone else. And, and I think once you, 
it's very, the hardest part was which ones do we like the most? Which ones do we, because we only get a certain amount of pages to put them all into, and we have a lot more recipes, so hopefully maybe there'll be another book after this, but when we get a little bit of free time. But it was, you know, what, what is inspiring me today, and what do I want to share with people, and what do I think people want to cook at mm -hmm. home, or, or what can they attempt to cook? And I think one topic, obviously, was there's a lot of sous vide cooking throughout the book. So it's not just, there is like using liquid nitrogen, but I think sous vide cooking, for instance, is, is one technique that now that you're seeing retail immersion circulators and things like that, that's telling me that it's, it's not just, it's not a modern cooking technique. It's like sauteing or braising or poaching or broiling. It's a technique that's here to stay. Can you explain are, what sous vide is for those of us who might not know? Cooking under vacuum, which I don't know why we even say sous vide anymore. I think we just like to sound fancy because we're not in France right now. So we might as well just say cooking under vacuum is, is what we should all be saying anyway because that's, that's what it is. You're taking a, a, a bag and you're vacuum packing your food in it and you're cooking it to... Uh, the number one reason I cook that way is, is to maintain a certain level of consistency in my cooking and, and mm. also um, it provides convenience. You know, you can put something in... And, you know, much like when the crock pot came out, everybody, I, I doubt everybody was like, put something in the crock pot and go to work and come home and have dinner ready. Like, that's stupid. You know what I mean? And I think it's just, it's taking that idea a step further and, and, and making a, a little bit more controlled instead of just, you know, whatever bacteria we were all growing in our crock pots for years. <laughs> Some of that bacteria was kind of good, though, you've got to admit. <laughs> um, Chili's in the good book, in a crock pot. What's that? What? Chili's good in a crock pot. Yeah, many, many things are. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's time for, for a resurgent. Maybe, maybe your next Bring book. Bring the crock pot back. <laughs> yeah, we can, okay. The crock pot is cool. Again. Um, in, the, in the book, you, 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 you name some of my personal favorite 7-Eleven foods, including um, uh, Funyuns and beef jerky, of course, and Dippin' Dots. And um, it, it, it really lends a, a, a great playfulness to the book. And I want to ask you guys, what are, what are some of your favorite uh, crap foods? Favorite crap foods? Um, Can we reference brands? Yeah, yes. I, I mean, I like chips. I it's mean, all about the you know, brand. Like if you're talking about junk food, I like crispy things. So, I mean, I, I, I love, like potato chips. I like now that there's so many other flavors now, I mean, that are out there, which is kind of cool. Brian loves Cheetos. I hate Cheetos. I used to chase Brian around the house with Cheetos. He's actually afraid of them. <laughs> Do you really hate Cheetos? Yeah. Why? I, I have no idea why. It, no, he doesn't hate them. He's afraid of them. Like... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I recently, in the last two years, um, unfortunately, I know there's a lot of people who don't need to hear wasting food, but I burned a few bags that Michael was chasing me around the house with. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't like, I don't like Cheetos, but, there, that, but that's one of the only things I don't like. So, I mean, it, it's, it's tough to say when you're, you're talking about a question like that, you know, what's out there. I mean, I love exploring new foods, you know. I really do as much as I can find. I like ice cream and cookies. Yeah. Nothing better than Weirder, Has anybody had? Weirder, I think it's or uh, worse, badder. I think it's I Jimmy Fallon's new ice cream. Know. It's got potato chips dipped in chocolate inside of it. Like that's one of my new favorite things right now. Yeah, that's a good one. Do you want to bring him over to the Cheetos dark side? What? Do, I've what actually you? like I've I've tried to like like he'll be sitting there and I'll come up behind him with a handful of Cheetos and be like and he he'll, this he'll is get just coming from a guy who didn't like, eat Brussels sprouts, mushrooms, and broccoli. For what, 10 years maybe? Yeah, but I wasn't <laughs> afraid of them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's debatable. 
Um, what's the most challenging part of being siblings yet working so closely together? We separated ourselves by by two coasts, the big country. So it, it's, we can coexist. No, it, it, the great thing is, that everybody thinks that there's some sort of like deep rivalry between us, but there's not. I mean, it's actually it, it, one of the great thing is great greatest. I think um, things about our relationship is is that because we are in the same industry and same career and same career paths that that we uh, that we're able to collaborate, but and also push each other's to to to, to be better. You know, and, but, and we're also each other's best resource, I think, you know, because we could bounce off ideas and, and he's going to be, he's not going to tell a lie. I mean, he's not going to, if I, I give him an idea, he's going to tell me it sucks if he doesn't like it and he's going to be true to it. And, and sometimes, you know, when you're a chef of a kitchen and you're, you're working with the people around you, everybody's like, yeah, chef, that's the greatest thing in the world. And, and you know, so sometimes you're not always getting the, the, the true meaning of what your food is and what they're responsible to be by the guests. And you have to rely on your team that's around you. And, and, and yes, there are people that I do respect in my kitchen who I, I, I will take their feedback, but I think Michael's is always the best. Would you agree Aww. with that? Aww. Aww. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, you know, we're, what we're not good at is just being brothers. Um, because, you know, when we call each other, it's, what are you making today? Oh, I'm making this, I'm making that. And what are you doing? And how are you doing that? And how's the restaurant? And this and that. And then by the end of the phone conversation, it's like, we're How's your wife? By Great. How's your yeah. kids? Great. Okay, bye. And then we're just like, so we don't, we don't have the normal interaction that brothers have, which is it's kind of interesting because we do focus a lot on work, but at the same time, there's that level of trust like Brian was talking about, and, and we do learn a lot from each other. I mean, Brian is, I just opened my first restaurant, and I had no idea how hard that was, mm -hmm. and I don't think I could have done it without being able to call him and pick his brain for that stuff. I told and, you it was hard. He tried to talk me out of it, actually, and I should have listened to him because it was a lot easier running somebody else's restaurant. But, um, you know, I don't know that there's, there's a challenge. I mean, the biggest challenge is, is to not disappoint the other one, I think. And that's, you know, that's probably the biggest challenge that, that I have is to just not to, to drop the ball, you know, because we, we share the same last name. So if any Voltaggio, you know, gets a bad review or whatever, then it, 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 I think it affects both of us so it's like we're trying to make sure that we're out there representing each other and and making sure that our restaurants you know my restaurant has to be as good as his and, and vice versa because people do hold us accountable as one unit you could have done your own books too and you chose to do your first book together why it just it made sense i think in in a lot of ways um Number one, it's, it's a little bit easier to, to write a book when there's two authors because you can rely on somebody else to... I mean, the book still had to be that big, except mm -hmm. I only had to write half of it. So I, that, was, that was a big reason for it, Is to be honest with you. the way out of it? <laughs> no. how, how, do, how do I write half a book and get away with it? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I think because... I, I think people were definitely intrigued by our differences in our, in our cuisine. I think that everybody thought that we're completely different. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I think the good thing about us you know, collaborating on this book is you do see that there's some similarities in our food, but then you do see that where, where we can be polar opposites. And I think it has to do somewhat of our personal, um, you know, uh, our personalities. But then also, I think it shows that when you're working under all of, you know, all of these different chefs out there in your career, that you get influenced by other experiences. You get influenced by chefs, you get influenced by, by your, your travel. And I think that you see some of that in this book, too. So I think it was an interesting take. that We, we threw the two of us together, and, and we laid it on paper so that you could see the differences and, right. and where they come from. Great. 
Uh, questions? Hey guys, just wait for me to uh, come with you with or come to you with the mic. And don't be shy. Ask anything, Please. anything and everything. I mean it. So I was curious. You were talking before about you made a comment that it had to be food that you liked making, but as well would be accessible for the home cook. Did that actually sway you in what recipes you were making? Whether the home cook really could do it, or just kind of like you know, kind of put them up to the challenge, that type of thing. I. To be honest, there, there are things in the book, there's a lot of things in the book that's going to be difficult for the home cook to make, but for every, we really tried to make it in the sense that for every recipe that we wrote, or included in the book rather, that we didn't think was that accessible for the home cook, we made sure that there was another one to counter, to balance it, and make sure that there was another recipe in there for the home cook. So it, it's difficult, because in, and in fact, I'm learning as a chef in my restaurant that I'm not cooking for myself, and that I think is one of the biggest lessons that I'm learning today is that I should start eating a lot more of my own food and see how much I actually enjoy it, because although I think it's a great idea and I put it together and it looks great on a plate, other people might not like it as much. So getting to understand who you're cooking for and who your audience is, and I think in this book we tried to, to do both, and, and it was difficult to do in a book that's you know that thick. So. There, there's a lot more that, that we want to say, and I think there's a lot more out there to be said. And so this is just really a little snapshot into, into what we're thinking and what we've been thinking for the past couple of years. I eat out in restaurants quite a bit, and one thing I've noticed, beside the fact that my blood pressure and weight are both increasing, is that um, many chefs are very interested in the way food tastes uh, and they do, do not want you to die in the restaurant. But if you would walk out a few blocks and pass away, they wouldn't mind that so much as the way it seems. So what are you doing about the health of your customers? Don't you owe something uh, to them about that? Yeah, um, you know, Michael commented today, we were sitting in, in, a, in a show earlier today about, say, sauces, for example. I mean, there's in a lot of, like, I guess traditional cooking, there's a heavy hands of butter and, and things that can be a little less healthy, sir. Um, but, but salt. But now using like pure flavors of juices and, and using that as a vehicle for sauces and also you know, vegetable juices um, can add some really great, great flavor. And you'll see some examples of that actually in our book and what we did. So, I mean, we are taking, a, 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 I guess, a more of an approach to, um, to lightening some of our food, too, as we, as we move forward. I guess. Um, have anything else to add to that? I mean, you know, one thing is, though, too, I mean, in a book, we used, <laughs> we used, we, used we, we, we did a measurement of salt, you know, so we, we understood, we didn't, we, we didn't leave it to taste. So you might over-season something, and you might not know it. So we helped out, and we put the right amount of measurement of salt to a finished dish so that it tastes great, but it doesn't taste like salt. So it just accentuates the flavor, as it should be doing. It's its job. And so I think we took, we took some time and we did that in this book. I mean, it's up to the diner too, though. It's up to the customer to communicate with the server. I mean, at the end of the day, you're there spending your money. And when you go shopping for a car, you don't let them tell you what kind of car to buy. And I think that's, you know, a lot of restaurants, although food is an art form, and, and as artists, you know, it, it does kind of bum us out a little bit when people ask you to change something about a dish and, and there are restaurants out there that say we will absolutely not change anything about it and I kind of share the same philosophy but it, when it comes to somebody's health 
you know, we do try and understand what the needs are of the guests. And maybe if it's not that dish, let me make something for you that you want to eat or let me give me a chance. Like we don't have a lot of vegetarian options in my restaurant, but that doesn't mean that we don't serve vegetarians. When vegetarians come in, they tell us they're vegetarian and we ask, okay, what don't you want to eat? And as long as we don't send them what they don't want, then we're doing our job. And I think it's great to be able to adapt to the needs of your guests. And that's one thing that we try to do in our restaurants. Cause I find that a lot of people are, are starting to say no. And I mean, I've been to a restaurant before where I was sitting at a table that was as far from the bar as here to that black chair and they don't serve their hamburger in the restaurant. They only serve it at the bar, but there was only 10 seats at the bar. So I got the closest table to the bar that I could get, but I was there for their hamburger because they were famous for it and they wouldn't let me get it. So I, I, was, I was like, the bar's right there. Like I can almost touch it, but they still said no. And I think, you know, that's a shame because I left and, and I think you just, you, you have to understand what the customer's needs are, but I think the customers have a responsibility to communicate that too. Um, I have a question kind of going back to the whole discussion of uh, modernist techniques. And I was wondering um, what your opinion was on the fact that the whole so-called farm-to-table movement is often positioned as being very diametrically opposed to the use of modernist techniques, but we see you guys shopping at the farmer's market. It's obviously something sourcing of your products is highly important to you. Do you think that that's something that's been misportrayed and that might be one of the reasons why it's not as widely accepted? Yeah, no, I mean, definitely. And I think that you know, what you'll see is that, that chefs now, that we've gotten to the point of, um, of where we are with, with the addition of these modern techniques in, in cuisine and in food and, and it, that are available to chefs, Chefs that, that are um, that are that are really trendsetters and are pushing the envelope are are looking are, are people who are, have created this level of balance where, where they where they 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 know that and local isn't always the best either because it isn't all, might always not always be the best choice of ingredient because yes a tomato might be you know right there and available for you but how is it farmed so I mean there's a lot of there's a lot that needs to go into this um, when you're thinking about choosing your ingredients and and also. You know where where this sort of this misconception is that if you if you if you use modern technique in your food that you're not responsible in the way that you you grab your ingredients because um, you know I know myself I mean I and Michael I mean we obviously we both shop at markets we support our local farmers we 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 you know obviously look for for our fishmongers to be responsible in how that they're procuring seafood and so. All of those things are on the minds of chefs, you know, who, who want to be responsible in their cooking. But then again, why can't we use, you know, modern techniques? You know, why can't we, we cook sous vide? Because to be honest with you, you know, applying some of these techniques makes the food better and more consistent for the guests. And in some case, um, makes it just taste better, you know? I mean, that's the point. I mean, that's what it's all about. I think it's simple. You know, you don't, I, I never write on the menu such and such farms tomatoes and such and such farms right. cheese and such and such farms this. But I also don't write such and such cooked sous vide, such and such sauteed, such and such roasted. And I feel like you should be looking for ingredients responsibly. And if you feel the need to, like, look at somebody's menu and they've got one ingredient on there that they're proud to tell you, like, this is such and such farms chicken. And then they don't do that for every other one. Does that mean the rest of them were like headless test tube cows and like, I mean, no, but to be honest with you, it's like you should be sourcing ingredients responsibly and you should be using techniques that make the food taste good. And that's it. 
And if you can use both of those in moderation and, and do it in a way that's responsible, I mean, we're all doing our best. You, we can't go out and buy every single vegetable at the farmer's market. We wouldn't have enough to, to run our restaurant for the day. But we can try, and, and I know that that's certainly what we all do. But if I, if I don't have that same onion from that same farmer today because he just simply ran out, then I need to find something else, and I need to find something that I can use that day. And I think it's, it's just you, you, you do the best you can, and I think that's what everyone should do. Who got the first tattoo? Uh, I actually did. Yeah? yeah? You guys have a lot of them, don't you? No, I mean, that's, I don't. He does. <laughs> I, I have a few. Um, no, but I actually got my first one on my ankle when I was 16. It's really cool, too. It's, a yeah. dra- it's one of those makes... stupid dragons that goes like this, you know? <laughs> it was 50 bucks. That's man. okay. That's I, I, have, I, I, I do have the, the, the sunshine on my back, so sorry. <laughs> yes. Sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> well... You guys were, were fabulous, and you guys were fabulous, too. Thank you so much for yeah, coming. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Guys, thank you so much for coming in, guys. Hope you enjoyed yourself. Please make sure to head to iTunes.com forward slash Volt Inc. Um, to download your copy. And uh, once again, a warm round of applause for our guests this evening, Brian and Michael Voltaggio and James Oslin.